Hi there, this is Kathleen, your host for this episode. I've lost a couple phones in my life, and one time it was when I was studying in the UK with a couple months left before I was coming back to Hong Kong. And so I decided to experiment with a phoneless life, which at first was a real struggle, but eventually I got used to it and it was so liberating to the point where when I came back, my parents had to drag me to the Apple store to replace my phone. So if you've never done a phone detox, I would highly recommend it. But the bigger question for most of us is how can we coexist with technology and our phones in a way that still gives us enough autonomy over our lives? That is essentially what the book review I'll be doing is all about today. If you're new here, this is Mindful Chatter presented to you by Steph, Vincent and Kath. Here on this podcast, we chat about everything related to mindfulness both as a personal practice and as a way to create social impact. We explore ways to improve our self-awareness and social awareness so that we can do what is best for ourselves and society. If you like this podcast, the best way to support us is to subscribe and leave us a rating and review. You can also send this episode to a friend or share it on social media by tagging us at MindfulChatterHK on Instagram or our Facebook page, Mindful Chatter. Enjoy the show. Hello everyone, welcome to Mindful Chatter's very first book review, where we will be sharing some of the lessons we've learned from books which we would highly recommend in our own words. And if you resonate with any of the content here, do feel free to check out the original books because a 20 to 30 minute episode simply can't do a book any justice. So. If you're listening to this episode, chances are you already have a pretty strong sense of self-awareness. You're aware that your relationship with technology is, in Facebook terms, it's complicated. Our relationship with technology is complicated by the fact that they mix harm with benefits. And the most common response to this complication would be hacks like social media detox, keeping your phone away at night. The appeal of these hacks is that you get to keep all the good things about these technologies while still minimizing their worst impacts. And if these types of corrections are working for you, great. You can probably stop listening to this episode for now, but feel free to come back in the future if you find yourself relapsing because that's a vicious cycle I was trapped in for many years before I read the book Digital Minimalism by Cal Newport. So Cal Newport is an associate professor of computer science at Georgetown University, and he argues that sometimes willpower, quick fixes, and vague resolutions are not enough to change your cognitive landscape which controls your behavior. The addictiveness of new technologies design and the strength of the cultural pressure supporting them are sometimes too strong for an ad hoc approach to succeed. And Digital Minimalism is a book about a philosophy of technology use rooted in your deep values that provides clear answers to questions such as what tools you should use and how you should use them. And before I dive into the book, I should warn that I will be using the terms phone addiction and technology addiction interchangeably simply because this was the lens I read the book with 
as some of you might have heard from Steph's interview with me in an earlier episode, the reason I bought this book was because I found myself scrolling on my phone endlessly during COVID lockdown when I was in the UK. That said, I think the principles from the book can be applied more generally. So let's start by defining the problem, because unless you see the problem, you can't find a solution. People who have complicated relationships with technologies tend to respond in two ways. Some people are quick to push back by turning their focus to the utility of technology. They then conclude that it's incorrect to dismiss these technologies on the grounds that they're useless, and that's usually sufficient to kill the idea of doing anything about your addiction. And others recognize that phone addiction can be as harmful as alcohol or drugs addiction, and they start fighting phone usage like a bad habit. Both camps are right in their claims, but they're also missing one important point. In the words of Cal Newport, it's not about usefulness, it's about autonomy. There's endless evidence on the utility of technology, such as you know, a struggling artist finding an audience through social media, keeping up with your friend's child's baby pictures, or even using a hashtag to monitor a grassroots movement, all doing some good to society. None of these scenarios in isolation create any discomfort in terms of our relationship with technology. Instead, the discomfort only becomes visible when you look at the thicker and bigger reality of how these technologies as a whole have managed to expand beyond the minor roles for which we adopted them. Increasingly, technologies dictate how we behave and how we feel, and they sometimes force us to use them more than we think is healthy, often at the expense of other activities which we should find more valuable such as when we tune out on our phone during family gatherings or lose our ability to enjoy a nice moment without the urge to snap it for a virtual audience. In other words, what's making us uncomfortable is this feeling of losing control. It's also important to distinguish between phone addiction and, say, cocaine addiction, because unlike cocaine, technology does not necessarily cause brain damage per se. With cocaine addiction, both cocaine and the addiction are bad. But with phone addiction, it's the addiction that is a problem, not the phone. And most of us understand that technology has pros and cons, but when we approach the problem with only the intention of breaking a bad habit, we inevitably perceive technology as the enemy and forget this nuance, which can be unsustainable in the long run because once you've declared your independence from the phone, for example, you'll feel entitled to appreciate the phone again and eventually fall back into the vicious cycle of addiction. To many people, addiction is a scary word. Until recently, it was assumed that addiction can only be applied to alcohol or drugs, substances that include psychoactive compounds that can directly change your brain chemistry. In popular culture, the word addiction therefore triggers images of drug addicts suffering serious withdrawal symptoms or alcohol addicts beating up their children, for example. But in modern psychology, addiction has a careful definition without the more sensational elements. Addiction is a condition in which a person engages in use of a substance or in a behavior 
for which the rewarding effects provides a compelling incentive to repeatedly pursue the behavior despite detrimental consequences. We'll briefly touch on the detrimental consequences, which fundamentally result from a loss of control. And so the next question is, what makes our phones so addictive? The book first turns to Adam Alter, a business professor with a PhD from Princeton in social psychology. After reviewing the relevant psychology literature and interviewing relevant people in the tech world, two things became clear to him. First, our new technologies are particularly well-suited to foster behavioral addictions. This is because the behavioral addictions connected to technology tend to be moderate as compared to the strong chemical dependencies created by drugs and cigarettes. If I force you to quit Facebook, you're not likely to suffer serious withdrawal symptoms. But if the app is only one tap away on the phone in your pocket, a moderate behavioral addiction will make it really hard to resist checking your account again and again throughout the day. Second, in many cases, these addictive properties of new technologies are not accidents, but instead carefully engineered design features. According to Tristan Harris, a Google engineer turned whistleblower against the tech world, there's a whole bunch of techniques that get used by tech companies to get you using the product for as long as possible. They want you to use it in particular ways and for long periods of time because that's how they make their money. For example, the notification symbol for Facebook was originally blue to match the color of the rest of the website, but nobody used it and so they changed the color to red, an alarm color, and the clicking skyrocketed. If you're interested in learning more about how tech companies are controlling our minds, you can check out Tristan Harris's TED Talk, which I will link to in the show notes. Another question is what specifically makes new technologies well-suited to create behavioral addictions? The book briefly focuses on two forces. The first force is intermittent positive reinforcement. To understand this force, we need to travel back in time to the 1970s when a psychologist named Michael Zeiler did an experiment with pigeons pecking a button that unpredictably released food. So in some trials, Zeiler would program buttons so that it delivered food every time the pigeons pecked. And in other trials, he programmed the button so that they delivered food only some of the time. Logically, you might expect the consistent schedule to work best, but the results weren't even close. The pigeons peck almost twice as often when the reward wasn't guaranteed. Rewards delivered unpredictably are far more enticing than those delivered with a known pattern. Something about unpredictability releases more dopamine, a key neurotransmitter for regulating our sense of craving. And this same pigeon pecking behavior is essentially replicated in the feedback buttons on social media. Every post on social media platforms is like a gamble. Will you get more likes or will it fade without any feedback? Either way, the outcome is hard to predict, which makes the whole activity of posting and checking so appealing. But social media feedback is not the only online activity with this property of unpredictable reinforcement. Many people have the experience of visiting a content website for a specific purpose. Say, for example, going to a newspaper website to check the latest coronavirus numbers. 
And then they find themselves 30 minutes later, still mindlessly following trails of links, skipping from one headline to another headline. This behavior can also be sparked by unpredictable feedback. Most articles you click on end up being, relatively speaking, a waste of time. But occasionally, you land on one that creates a strong emotion, and every appealing headline clicked or interesting link tabbed is essentially like a pull on the slot machine handle in the casino. You're gambling on whether or not the next link will be something interesting. And this behavior applies to the ads we see, the messages we receive, and so on. The second force that encourages behavioral addiction is the drive for social approval. Back in ancient times, it was important to carefully manage your social standing with other members of your tribe because, to a large extent, your survival depended on it. In the 21st century, however, new technologies have hijacked this deep drive for social approval to create profitable behavioral addictions. Going back once again to social media feedback buttons, if lots of people click the little heart icon under your latest Instagram post, it feels like the tribe is showing you approval. The other side, of course, is that a lack of positive feedback creates a sense of distress, and this is some serious business for the brain, and so it can develop an urgent need to continually monitor this information. Does my tribe like me or not? The book also mentions the example of tagging people in photos on Facebook, Snapchat, and Instagram. These services now make this process nearly automatic by using cutting-edge image recognition algorithms to figure out who is in your photos and offer you the ability to tag them with just one single click, usually by asking a quick yes-no question like, do you want to tag so-and-so? Assuming you answer yes, the single click requires almost no effort on your part, but to the user being tagged, the resulting notification creates a socially satisfying sense that you were thinking about them. And the question is, did these companies invest the massive resources to perfect this auto-tagging feature because it was somehow crucial to their social network's usefulness? Or did they make this investment so that they could significantly increase the amount of addictive nuggets of social approval? With that said, how do we fight the forces that manipulate us towards behavioral addictions? and use new technologies for our best intentions rather than against them. As mentioned earlier, the book is written for those who realize that small changes are not enough to solve our big issues with technology, which are ingrained in our culture and backed by powerful psychological forces. Cal Newport argues that what we need is a philosophy of technology use, something that covers from the ground up which digital tools we allow into our lives, for what reasons, and under what constraints. The book proposes one such philosophy called digital minimalism, which is defined as a philosophy of technology use in which you focus your online time on a small number of carefully selected and optimized activities that strongly support things you value and then happily miss out on everything else. This minimalist approach is in stark contrast with the maximalist approach that most people deploy by default, a mindset in which any potential for benefit is enough to start using a technology that catches your attention. A maximalist is very uncomfortable with the idea that anyone might miss out on something that's the least bit interesting or valuable, 
So an interesting fact about Cal Newport is that he's actually never used Facebook. He then gave the example of asking a maximalist, "Why do I need to use Facebook?" And the maximalist would normally respond, "I can't tell you exactly why, but what if there's something useful to you in there that you're missing out on?" By contrast, digital minimalists believe that the best online life is formed by carefully creating their tools to deliver massive and unambiguous benefits. They tend to be incredibly wary of low-value activities that can take up their time and attention and end up hurting more than they help. In other words, minimalists don't mind missing out on small things. What worries them much more is diminishing the large things they already know for sure make a good life good. The book's argument for why this philosophy works rests on three core principles. First, clutter is costly. Digital minimalists recognize that cluttering their time and attention with too many devices, apps, and services creates an overall negative cost that can outweigh the small benefits that each individual item provides in isolation. The book examines a so-called theory of new economics built on the following principle: the cost of a thing is the amount of life which is required to be exchanged for it, whether immediately or in the long run. The book sheds new light on the cliche that time is money from an economic perspective. When people consider specific tools or behaviors in their digital lives, they tend to focus only on the value each produces. For example, maintaining an active presence on Twitter might occasionally open up an interesting new connection or expose you to an idea you haven't heard before. Standard economic thinking would think that. These profits are good, and the more you receive, the better. The theory of new economics, however, demands that you balance this profit against the costs measured in terms of your life. How much of your time and attention are you willing to sacrifice to earn the small profit of occasional connections and new ideas that are generated by cultivating a significant presence on Twitter? Assume, for example, that your Twitter habit effectively consumes ten hours per week. On the other hand, if you value new connections and exposure to interesting ideas, you could consider adopting a habit of attending an interesting talk or event every week, or forcing yourself to chat with at least three people every month. This would produce similar types of value, but consume much fewer hours of your life per month, leaving you with extra hours to dedicate to other meaningful pursuits. And it's this kind of calculation that helps us move past the vague subjective notion that there are trade-offs inherent in digital clutter. It forces you to confront the trade-offs more precisely by treating the minutes of your life as a concrete and valuable substance, and to always examine how much of this life are we willing to trade for the various activities which we allow to claim our time. The second core principle is. Optimizing is important. Digital minimalists believe that deciding that a particular technology supports something they value is only the first step. To truly extract its full potential benefit, it's necessary to think carefully about how you use the technology. This is based on the law of diminishing marginal returns, which applies to the improvement of production processes. The law essentially states that investing more resources into a production process cannot indefinitely improve its output. 
eventually you reach a natural limit and start experiencing less and less extra benefit from continued investment. The law of diminishing marginal returns can apply to the various ways in which we use new technologies to produce value in our personal lives. For example, you find it important to remain informed about current events, and new technologies can help you support this goal. At first, the process you deploy is just keeping an eye on the links that pop up on your social media feeds. This process produces some value as it keeps you more informed than if you weren't using the internet at all, but it leaves a lot of room for improvement. And with this in mind, you invest some energy to identify a more carefully created set of online news sites to follow and to find an app that allows you to clip articles from these sites and read them all together in nice interface without any distracting ads. This improved personal technology process for keeping informed is now producing even more value. And as the final step in this optimizing process, you discover that you're best able to absorb complex articles when you clip them throughout the week and then sit down to read all of them on a Saturday morning on a tablet over coffee at a local cafe, for example. At this point, your optimization efforts have massively increased the value you receive from this personal technology process for staying informed. As the law of diminishing marginal returns tells us, however, you're probably nearing the natural limits, after which further improvements to this process will become increasingly difficult. The reason the book introduces this idea from economics is that most people invest very little energy in these types of optimizations. In economic terms, most people's personal technology processes currently exist on the early part of the return curve, the location where additional attempts to optimize will in fact yield massive improvements. So when a new app comes along which meets a similar need addressed by existing apps, The temptation for us is to install that new app simply because you haven't optimized the existing apps yet. Digital minimalists focus not just on what technologies they adopt, but also on how they use them. The third core principle is that intentionality is satisfying. Digital minimalists derive significant satisfaction from their general commitment to being more intentional about how they engage with new technologies. Part of what makes this philosophy so effective is that the very act of being selective about your tools will bring you inherent satisfaction, typically much more than what is lost from the tools you decide to avoid. I particularly like this sentence written by Cal Newport. The sugar high of convenience is fleeting, and the sting of missing out dulls rapidly. But the meaningful glow that comes from taking charge of what claims your time and attention is something that persists. I think the key here is that we derive satisfaction from reclaiming autonomy and winning the battle against the forces that steer us towards behavioral addictions. The end of the book also looks at the attention resistance, which is a loosely organized movement of individuals who use high-tech tools and strict operating procedures to extract value from the products of the digital economy while avoiding falling victim to compulsive use. Finally, the book takes a closer look at some ideas that will help you cultivate a sustainable digital minimalism lifestyle. I'm not going to dive into all the details here, but one particular chapter which really stood out for me is Don't Click Like. 
As you can imagine, it means don't click like on social media. The chapter starts by examining the USA Rock Paper Scissors League to highlight human beings' ability to perform complicated social thinking. It then goes on to discuss the social media paradox, how research shows that social media makes you feel both connected and lonely, happy and sad. The part that really hit me was the section named Reclaiming Conversation. The book borrows some useful phrasing from MIT professor Sherry Turkle, a leading researcher on the subjective experience of technology. Turkle draws a distinction between connection, meaning low bandwidth interactions that define our online social lives, and conversation, the much richer high bandwidth communication that defines real world encounters between humans. Sherry Turkle has presented case studies on the decreased well-being that occurs when conversation is replaced with connection. In both the book and Sherry Turkle's TED Talk, reference is made to the following conversation. Turkle was once asked a profound question that gets at the core of her argument. Don't all these little tweets, these little sips of online connection, add up to one big gulp of real conversation? And Turkle was clear in her answer, no. Face-to-face conversation unfolds slowly. It teaches patience. We attend to tone and nuance. On the other hand, when we communicate on our digital devices, we learn very different habits. If you would like to learn more about how our devices and online personas are redefining human communication, I encourage you to check out her TED Talk, which I will also link to in the show notes. In conclusion, I'm not here to say that technology is bad or there's a right or wrong way to use technology. But if you're serious about being in command of your own life and claiming autonomy over how you use your devices, rather than how the devices manipulate you, technology is likely to be one of the issues which we all need to reflect on. So I hope this episode has given you some helpful insights into the issue. Again, if you resonate with anything I've just said, do check out the book Digital Minimalism by Cal Newport. Another documentary which I recently came across on Netflix is The Social Dilemma, which touches on a lot of the issues mentioned in this book as well. Thank you. Thank you for listening all the way to the end. It means so much to us that you're willing to sacrifice a portion of your life to listen to our podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to subscribe for more. And if you could leave us a rating and review, that would really help us reach more people who may benefit from this podcast. If you have any questions or feedback, please do drop us a line on Instagram at MindfulChatterHK or our Facebook page, Mindful Chatter. You can also email us at MindfulChatterHK at gmail.com. We look forward to having you back on our next Mindful Chat.